we're going to transition now to just uh, opening God's Word, and we're going to hear from God's Word this morning. I'll invite Ashley to come and read the Scripture for us. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 24. It's a tough act to follow. This is God's Word from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, beginning in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Ashley did a great job after having Pastor Shane come up and all the emotions of that. Uh, I got butterflies in my stomach, and I knew it was coming, and we already had a 9 a.m. service. I'm so excited to be able to welcome him back. I'm also really excited because they got my email address fixed, which is shane at soundcitybiblechurch.com. So... Happy to announce that that is now active again. Uh, hey, my name is actually Aaron, if you are new, uh, which is a weird thing with the email, but don't worry about it. Uh, if, if you're new here, I'm one of the pastors. And what we're doing right now as a church family is we're looking at a, a series of topics uh, that we affectionately refer to as things that are hard to do. Uh, as we follow Jesus, as we seek to live a Christian life, how many of you know there are just things about the Christian life that are challenging, things that are hard to do? And I'll just say this by way of introduction real briefly. One of the things <laughs> as a Christian preacher that is hard to do is to address really tough, complicated subjects in a timely manner. Uh, as we've gone through these last few weeks in particular, looking at issues like a biblical view of sexuality and race, or uh, as you can see from the slide today, the end times, there simply is no way to say all that could be said or maybe all that would need to be said in the context of one sermon. And so as we've been going through these last few weeks, I've been getting text messages, emails, uh, questions from people just in the hallway or in the lobby after service. Hey, what about this or what about that? And so one of the ideas that Shane and I hatched this last week um, <clears throat> just in the office is the idea of sitting down and doing a little like podcast where he and I kind of sit and try to answer and address some of those extra questions uh, that have arisen. So if you have questions about the end times, or if you've had questions about like the, the first couple of weeks of, of holding someone accountable, or, or uh, you know, the issues of race, or, or sex, or those sorts of things, uh, again, you can send an email in, you can come talk to me afterwards, email would be best. We're looking to try to do that maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, so the sooner you get those questions in, the better, and we'll try to get that public 
published out by the end of the week so that we can address some of those extra questions because, again, it's really hard to know what needs to be said, what could be saved for later. These are big topics and big subjects. And again, as, as we're addressing the subject today, it's really hard to understand the end times. This will be a little bit more of a, you know, kind of a, a, a cerebral sort of a thing, but I, I hope and pray that this has implications for all of our hearts as we seek to trust Jesus uh, in turbulent times that we live in. And, and so what I would like to do before we do anything else is just pray and ask for God's help. Amen? And you guys can pray for me. You can pray for yourselves as we go to God in his word. Let's, let's pray together. God, would you help me to communicate uh, those things that are most foundational and most important? And God, would you help me to communicate what is helpful and what is truthful? And God, for each and every single one of us, as we look at this subject of the end times, God, I ask and I pray that you would help uh, us to connect it to our present day lives, to where we are and how we're living from day to day. And God, would you be gracious in this moment to help us see beautiful truths in your word that would cause us to love Jesus more, that would cause us to have a, a passion and a sense of urgency for sharing the gospel and would cause us to experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. So as we have been announcing these different topics, this is the one, two things, this is the one that I chose. Uh, you know, the elders talked, staff had talked, various members of the church, hey, can we talk about this? Can we talk about that? And I said, I want to talk about the end times. So you're welcome. But this is also the one that I have received the most pushback on. Even just this last week, someone in my own community group who shall remain nameless, but his name is Peter, said to me, Ugh, why do we got to talk about the end times? That's just, oh, I just don't understand it. It has no relevance to my life. And, and on the one hand, I'm like, well, gee, thanks. Now I'm encouraged to preach on Sunday. Well, on the second hand, I can really empathize. I asked uh, uh, David, one of our members, to put together a little word cloud for me. If we can throw that slide up here. When you start talking about end times, these are the words that start getting thrown around. Things like eschatology, dispensational premillennialism, historic premillennialism, which is a different thing. And by the way, I'm not talking about people who are under the age of 33. I'm talking about a different millennialism. Postmillennial theonomy, amillennial inaugurated eschatology, my personal favorite in this list. Perusia, pre, post, mid-tribulation rapture, apocalyptic literature, antichrist, partial or full preterist, both are suspect, watch out for them. Abomination of desolation, Armageddon, typology, replacement theology, and what Rabbi Matt and I talked about for two hours at a barbecue, I mean cookout last Sunday, Zion Okay? You all can at least have some sympathy for people who say things like, I don't want to talk about eschatology. I don't want to talk. That's the one word, if you were going to learn any up there, eschatology, the kind of right in the middle there, just means the study of the end, the eschatos. That's the end, the Greek, the Greek word. And ology means the study. Now, when people look at a, a word cloud like this, I find that there are two common reactions. The first reaction is fascination that leads to obsession. Ooh, what, <laughs> these people are like saying, please tell me that for the next 40 minutes, you're going to just define all of those words for me. 
I want to understand. I want a lecture on understanding all of these words. I want you to predict who the Antichrist is. I want you to predict the date of the rapture and the subsequent date of the return of Jesus. I'm going to get there, but you got to stay to the end of the sermon, guys. Okay? There's this fascination that leads to an obsession. Don't raise your hand, but you probably know somebody like that. In response, either to the words themselves or to those people, there's another reaction, which is confusion that leads to avoidance. I don't understand it. I don't like those people who are trying to understand it. I'm just going to avoid the whole thing. It'll all work out in the end. Jesus returns. And again, there, there is a, yeah, I heard a, yeah, I heard a name. I'm watching you, Rick. Uh, there is something to be said about that of, of the reality is, is with very few exceptions, most of these words are not in the Bible. These are theological terms that have grown over time to try to help us understand the various perspectives that we all bring to the scriptures when it comes to understanding the end of the age, the return of Jesus, and what is going to happen. To the people who are in category one, the fascination that leads to obsession, I would simply urge you to just calm down a little bit. Calm down. You won't figure it all out. Jesus said no One will know the day or the hour of my return. And I have literally heard people say like, but actually, yes, we're supposed to figure it out. I literally read that once on someone's blog. No, I can figure it out. Calm down. To those of you who are more in category two of like, I'm confused. I want to avoid the whole thing. I simply want to say to you, it's okay. We can go slow. We can break it down. But I want you to avoid the the misconception that this is not important. End times theology is important. Let me give you three reasons. Number one, it's in the Bible. Jesus talks about it. That's important, okay? If Jesus talks about something and it's in the Bible, then it's important. Now, you might not know why or you might not know exactly how it is important, but can I get an amen from anybody that at some point we have to acknowledge if Jesus talks about it, it's probably important. Amen? But number two is this. All Christian theology is eschatological. All Christian theology is, is connected to the end. Let me, let me, I know it's a fancy way of saying it. Let me say it more simply. If you do not understand the end of the story, you run the risk of misunderstanding everything else along the way. If we don't understand where the story is going, if we don't understand the conclusion that Jesus is bringing human history to, we're going to misunderstand the garden. We're going to misunderstand Noah and the flood. We're going to misunderstand uh, Abraham and the promise to the people of Israel. We're going to misunderstand the Torah and the law of Moses. We're going to misunderstand Jesus' earthly ministry. We're going to misunderstand his death, his resurrection. We're going to misunderstand, or at least run the risk of misunderstanding everything if we don't keep the resolution, the end of the story in mind. How many of you have ever had that experience where you're watching a movie And you're just confused. What is happening? What is going on? I don't understand it. And then you get to the end and you see the the thing and the big reveal and you're like, oh, and then you start to think back through the movie and it all starts to make more sense. It's kind of like that. All theology is connected to the end of the story. But a third reason why this is important to study the end times is that theology always has real-world implications. If you believe something, maybe only to a, a little extent, but sometimes to a great extent, whatever you believe will have an effect on how you live your life. And, and let, me, let me get political for a moment. This last week, I read two different articles 
two kind of viral-ish sort of things that, that went widespread. One was of a pastor, I don't remember exactly where, somewhere in the South, one who, 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 was, who was preaching a message about how people who are sexually immoral, according to the laws of the Old Testament, should be put to death. And this video went viral. It was shared by secular news organizations. And it was another example of yet all of those hate, hateful, bigoted Christians talking about sex again and leave my body alone and all that kind of stuff. But when I listened to what he was saying, the reason and the justification is because this pastor has a particular view of the end times. I heard it in what he was communicating. If you, if you know some of the certain keywords, he has what we would call a theonomist post-millennial sort of perspective, which means he believes that the nations of this world should be governed according to the laws given on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. That is his end times view and it affected what he said and it affects how he would govern the world if he was in charge. Theology always has real world implications. Number two, again, I'm going to get even more political, so trigger warning here. Uh, The current Secretary of State, a guy named Mike Pompeo, recently had some comments about this potential conflict that is brewing with the nation of Iran. Are you guys familiar with this? It's scary stuff. It is serious stuff. And he made some comments. Apparently he is a, he claims to be a, a, a Bible-believing Christian. I don't know the man, but he's, he's claiming that he's a, a follower of Jesus. And he was making some comments about war in the Middle East. And if you listen to what he's saying and you parse what he's saying, his theology is being played out in how he is addressing this situation in the Middle East. He holds to a more dispensational premillennial view. Again, if you study these things, you can hear the code words and he has no problem with there being a big eruption of war in the Middle East because according to his end times view, that is what must happen before Christ can return. Now, I'm, I'm not here to throw rocks at either one of these necessarily because in these different viewpoints, there's a lot that goes into them. I'm simply trying to make the point that theology always has real world implications. Amen? We don't ever do theology in a vacuum. If it, if it doesn't have a bearing on your life, then it's not true theology and you ought to scrap the whole thing and go pay attention to your fantasy baseball team. Theology always has real world implications. Here's where I want to ground things for today. And it's this. The story of human history has a goal. We're going somewhere, friends. And the goal is Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, reconciling all things unto himself. There are very few things. At Sound City Bible Church, We have more of an open-handed approach to issues about the end times. I have my perspective on things. Uh, Pastor Shane went to Dallas Theological Seminary. He's got a little different perspective. The different elder team, like we, we, we discuss these things within a range of things. We don't have a particularly closed-handed approach. Jesus is the son of God. He died and rose. Salvation is in him alone. Amen? Like that's, that's closed-handed, open-handed. When's the millennium gonna happen? What about the rapture? What's the place of Israel and the, and the church and all that stuff? We can discuss it. But this right here, this is closed-handed. We're going somewhere. Christ is going to return and he will restore heaven and earth and all things will be made new again because of his death and resurrection. Praise God. That's the close-handed thing. If you, you can disagree with some other stuff that I'm going to say here in a few minutes, that's okay. But this is where we have got to remain grounded, church. Now, 
I want to walk us through this passage in Matthew 24. And it's part of a longer conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples about the the point of his earthly ministry. He's going to die. He's going to rise again, talking about his return and the end of the age. And there's a bigger conversation. We're just parachuting in for a little bit of this. And I hope to be able to present to you five things that we can agree on from this passage. Five things that are indicated about this subject of the end times in general. So with this as our kind of closed-handed starting position, let me offer to you five thoughts, picking up in verse three. The first one is this, is we need to think carefully when it comes to the subject of the end times. Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately. And that's an interesting word to me. The disciples come privately Much of Jesus' ministry and his preaching is public. There's disputes with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. There's conversations that Jesus has with people in front of the crowds. But here the disciples come privately and they ask him, can you tell us, like, you're talking about all these things. When is it going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. And, And I'll just simply start by saying, is there any subject in all of Christian theology that can generate quite as much controversy as the topic of end times? Is there anything that's more prone to sensationalism and attention getting headlines and clicks on website than the end times? Like people aren't usually having this much popular level success arguing about theories of the atonement. I mean, you know, there's multiple theories of the atonement, right? Christus Victor, justification, penal substitutionary atonement. Nobody is selling tens of millions of left behind books arguing about theories of the atonement, okay? And by the way, when, when I was paying attention to left behind, it was the Lord's appointed Kirk Cameron as the star of the movies. When did Nicolas Cage jump in and insert himself like... Stay out of it, Nicholas. Like, this is, this is Kirk's domain, and, right? Like, but seriously, like, you couldn't, could you imagine Nicolas Cage or Kirk Cameron starring in a movie where people are arguing about theories of the atonement? No, it is end times theology that generates this much speculation, this much heat, this much, this much you know, clicks on websites. And like I said, there, there, is, there is much to consider and much to think about. And I like this idea that the disciples come to Jesus privately. It's like, hey, we need to, we need to like kind of bring this conversation down just a little bit. We don't need the Pharisees jumping in. We certainly don't need the Sadducees jumping in. They don't even believe in an afterlife or, or the resurrection or anything. We just need to have this conversation kind of privately, out of earshot of everyone else. Dear friends, Christian sisters and brothers, I want to urge you to avoid hype and speculation to avoid sensationalism and knee-jerk reactions when it comes to subjects around the end times. We need to have a posture, maybe more like these disciples, that says, okay, we need to understand this. Let me go slow. Let me be thoughtful. Let me, let me try in the right sort of a way to remove kind of the emotionalism around it because, man, you talk about emotions. I mean, one of the subjects that comes up when it talks about, when we talk about the end times is the whole idea of ethnic Israel. 
ethnic Israel? Is there, is, has Israel been replaced by the church? And now there is like Israel was back then and now it's the church or is there a future for ethnic Israel? And, and how does it work that we Gentile believers have been grafted in? And, and, and again, Theology always has real world implications and there are people right now with different end times perspectives pointing missiles at each other because of this. How can we think carefully as Christians about the end times? Hopefully, no one's going to stand up. I disagree. I'd like to think uncarefully. So I'll move on. The second point that I want to make is this. I want to make the point that we are in the end times. We, We are in them right now. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray for many will come saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray. There's that thinking carefully again. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But what does Jesus say? The end is not yet. One of the funny things you'll notice if you start paying attention to like certain guys on TV or certain people with blogs that are all about the end times, they're like, wars, rumors of wars, it's the end. And Jesus goes, actually, wars and rumors of wars is not the end. Just to think about that. Notice that next time. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then here's the, here's the key. Jesus says, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Birth pains is a very interesting analogy. Uh, Yesterday uh, is my mom's birthday and my second oldest daughter's birthday. We have a moment, this like singular point in time that we celebrate the birth of these two humans that I love. My daughter, Delaney, she turned 13 years old. I now have two teenagers in the house. Pray for me. My mom turned another age that I won't, because she'll probably listen to this podcast, and so I don't want to say it out loud, but she turned 60. It's a big deal for her, and uh, love you, mom, if you're listening. I'm going to get a text tomorrow. Uh, no, it's public knowledge. She's celebrating. It's a big milestone. We have this moment when we celebrate the, the birth. This is, this is the birth, but when you think about this analogy of the birth pains, The idea of labor and delivery being a prolonged process starts uh, to help us to understand the end times. Well, moms who have given birth, I've never given birth, surprise. Moms who have given birth, uh, approximately how long is kind of a standard labor and delivery? Do you have any medical professionals in the room here? A, a, A normal labor and delivery? How many, how many here have ever like either yourself or known somebody where like the labor was like, 36 hours long or just something ridiculously long. You known somebody? Yeah. Uh, uh, I also know my brother had to deliver one of my uh, nieces in the car because they didn't make it to the hospital so fast. But, but generally speaking, moms who are having their first child, what do they usually do? They usually go to the hospital, the birthing center, whatever, too soon. And what do the medical professionals often have to say? Calm down. This is going to take a while. Jesus uses this analogy for the end of the age that it's going to be a process. This is going to take a while. And actually, maybe I don't want to stretch the metaphor too far, but even think about labor and delivery where it's like there's contractions and then there's calm and then there's contractions and then there's some peace and then there's pain. And even think about the way the world goes. Wars and rumors of wars. And then, okay. And then like, ah, and then, oh, humanity might be making some progress. And oh, no, we're not. And you know, it's, 
the, the last 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose again have been the labor and delivery process of a new world that Jesus is bringing to bear. The author of Hebrews explicitly tells us, I mean, this is early Christian writing. The author of Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these, what does it say? Last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the author of Hebrews, you know, writing in the, in the first century, you know, decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, is calling it the end times. He's calling it the last days. Friends, you will hear people say, oh, we're in the end times, we're in the end times. And they mean like we're in like the very end times. I don't know. Jesus could come back this afternoon. He could wait for a few more thousand years. I don't know. But ever since Jesus went into that grave, took the keys of death and hell back and rose triumphantly, we're in the last days. Death is defeated. Satan's days of harassing people are numbered. And the message now today is repent and believe the gospel. For anyone who's here today that has yet to place your faith in Jesus, hear me on this. You don't know when Christ will return. I don't know when Christ will return. Do not presume that you have days and days and weeks and weeks and years and years to figure this out. Jesus died in your place for your sin. And he rose on the third day, triumphing over death, triumphing over the greatest enemy to mankind, death itself. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and he has appointed a day where he will return and make all things new again. And today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not delay. Receive his grace and his mercy and his goodness. And friends, if you already have responded to the gospel, you don't know what your loved one, what your family member, what your neighbor has as far as days you don't know when Christ will return. Is there an urgency in your heart to share the good news of the gospel? Because we're in the last days. Jesus said that his return will be unexpected like a thief in the night. One of our elders uh, is a volunteer and he, he, as an elder and he runs a business. They had a break-in last night. And I asked him, I said, well, you didn't have that on your calendar, did you? Nope, sure didn't. It was a surprise. It was out of the blue. It was a shocking moment. Jesus says, my return will be kind of like that. So don't delay. We're in the last days. It could last another thousand years. It could last another 10 minutes. Today is the day to respond to Jesus. And today is the day to go share the grace of Jesus with those who have yet to receive. Number three, we need to develop some grit. Verse nine, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, because of that, many are going to fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And this is a really interesting verse. I would preach a whole sermon on this. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But, Jesus says, <clears throat> the one who endures to the end will be saved. In the United States of America, there is a version of Christianity that gets sold. 
And it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a bestseller. It's a popular bestseller. You want to get your book in the airport bookstore? Here's the message of Christianity that you need to sell. Come follow Jesus. All your problems are done away with. Every single day is your best day you've ever had. No more worries, no more problems. Every day is, well, I'm not going to say it, but you know what I'm saying. This idea of following Jesus leads to your best life here and now. Now, friends, is there joy in knowing Jesus? Is there comfort in knowing Jesus? Is there peace in knowing Jesus? Would you want to live this life without Jesus? Absolutely not. But is there trial and tribulation to be had in following Jesus? You bet. So don't hear me say like, well, just suck it up. Following Jesus is just going to be a train wreck of misery. And then eventually we'll die and go to heaven and all be better. Then like, no, there is. (laughs) We just read the verse in the worship time. I think Arthur read it. The Philippians have the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's awesome. And that's true. That's gospel truth. But along with that peace that passes understanding, we will have challenges. It's not that Jesus removes all of the challenges. It's that he ministers mind-blowing amounts of peace to your heart in the middle of the challenges. It's not original to me. I've heard it said, I've even said it here before, that in other parts of the world, Christians fear the raised fist. But in the United States of America, we fear the raised eyebrow. Can I, can I just, okay, parentheses. I'm about to say some stuff that you can agree with. You can, you can, agree, you can agree with me. You can disagree with me later if you'd like. I'm just, I'm just parentheses here. This is a little bit of some opinion. But you'll forgive me because I haven't preached in two weeks and I've had so many opinions that I haven't shared. So... It seems to me, it seems to me a little bit too coincidental that a theology of a pre-tribulation rapture would grow in a privileged place like the United States of America. The idea of a rapture that's going to happen before the tribulation comes, all of Jesus' faithful followers are going to get like, like vacuum sucked out of the world and we won't have to go through, quote, the tribulation. I would, if you hold to that theology, I would invite you to get on a plane and go tell that to our friends in the Sudan right now. Oh, don't worry. You're, you're not going to get, there's not going to be tribulation. You're going to get raptured. Go tell that to our friends in North Korea. Go tell that to our friends in Pakistan or Sri Lanka where there have been bombings recently. Oh yeah, don't worry. No, no tribulation for you because there's this rapture coming. I think they might look at you and say, excuse me having some tribulation right now. Would you like to join me? Okay, end of parentheses. We will be caught up to welcome our returning king. That's in the Bible. That's in Thessalonians. But Jesus repeatedly, whenever the topic of the end comes up over and over and over again, we are encouraged to be persevering to endure, to develop some grit. It's like, what my, it's like what my dad used to say about going camping. Hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. That's kind of how I feel about this whole tribulation, rapture, all that stuff. Like, listen, maybe, 
Maybe there is a period of really intense persecution, global, worldwide persecution, right before the end of Jesus. And maybe there is a rapture where we will escape that persecution because of God's grace and mercy to us. But it's like what they said in the book of Daniel, and I'm already jumping ahead to the fall. I can't wait to preach the book of Daniel. But remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. And he said, look, we know our God can rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we ain't worshiping your stupid statue. We need to have that type of grit, that type of uh, perseverance to say, I will not turn to anyone or anything for my hope other than Jesus Christ alone. Which leads me to a related point, which is this, the, the balance. We need to balance hope and caution. Going back just a little bit, he said, all these negative things, right? Jesus said, people are going to fall away, betray each other, hate each other, false prophets, lawlessness, lovelessness. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And then Jesus follows it up with this beautiful gem. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So some who are more pessimistic, they really latch on to all those, those first verses. Oh, it's going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. People are going to be, you know, wars and falling away and false prophets. And then Jesus will come. There's, there's an expectancy of this kind of downward trajectory that will then lead to the return of Christ. For others, they latch on to this optimistic thing. The gospel is going to just keep going. All nations in the world people from, from every skin color and, and language and ages and all over the whole world, they're going to hear the gospel and then Christ will return. How awesome is that? People actually kind of build entire end times theological systems around whether they are more optimistic or more pessimistic. Let me, let me just, let's dip our toes in the waters of millennialism for a moment. No, I don't mean selfies on Instagram. I mean the millennium. In Revelation chapter 20, there is uh, this idea that, that there's the return of Christ and there's this period of a thousand years where he reigns. And depending on your theology, so, so more pessimists are going to land in the camp of pre-millennialism. This means that things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Christ will return, and then this millennium will start where Jesus rules and reigns. Those are, by and large, I am painting with some very broad brushes here, but by and large, people who hold that perspective are a little bit more pessimistic. They would say realistic, but they're latching on to those first couple of verses. The kind of flip side of that is the post-millennial view. These people are more optimistic. They say, things are going to get better and better. Christians are going to go out. All the nations are going to get saved. There's a period of a thousand years where it's like Jesus is like ruling and reigning and all things are, are under his feet. And then boom, then Jesus returns after the millennium. That's a more optimistic approach. This, by the way, post-millennialism was really, really popular in the early years of the United States of America when people were optimistic about everything. We can change the world. We can figure out everything and, 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 and solve the world through science. Then a few world wars and some holocausts and things like that happened and post-millennialism uh, kind of drifted away and premillennialism has been the dominant viewpoint in our cultural climate for the last hundred years or so. There's also something called amillennialism, which is more symbolic, or as I left in my notes, uh, more correct. Uh, I tipped my hand. I'm sorry. 
Here's the idea with amillennialism is this, this millennium is more of a symbolic representation of the period of time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when Jesus returns. That lots of numbers in the book of Revelation are, are symbolic and we shouldn't say it's a literal 1,000 year period. It's him ruling and reigning in heaven right now. And I think that this framework, again, you can disagree with me on this. I think this framework helps us to balance optimism and pessimism. By the way, there's one other one that gets thrown around, which is kind of a joke. It's called pan-millennialism, which is it'll all just pan out in the end. Uh, yeah, yeah. On the one hand, it will, yes. Uh, but on the other hand, don't, don't punt. Pick one. And pick the amillennial one because we've got better cookies. No, I'm just kidding. There's value in discussing these things and kind of wrestling with them. But, but the point is, if you, if you are someone who lands more in the premillennial camp and you feel that, that weight of those, those verses that Jesus said, don't forget the power of the gospel and the hope that the gospel is to transform the nations. If you're more post-millennial, I actually got a text from a friend who lives in Eastern Washington yesterday said that he was pre-millennial. Now he's post-millennial. I'm like, man, that must've gave you some whiplash. If you're post-millennial, don't forget the reality of the brokenness of humanity and the prevalence of sin. We need to balance how incredibly weak and wicked humans are and how incredibly good and powerful the gospel is. Last point, we got to remember the end of the story. Verse 14, this gospel of the, what is it, Sound City? The gospel of the, the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We are headed for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. And everything is as it should be. How many of you long for Jesus to be the one who's in charge? How many of you long for the goodness of his kingdom where there is no more injustice and there is no more racism and there is no more uh, 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 you know, power-grabbing politicians for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and he will reign forevermore. How many of you long for that day? I long for that day. And I long for us as Christians to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of this kingdom before, above and beyond, we are citizens of any earthly kingdom. Can I say to you that I think that much of the distress and rancor and anger that we see around politics in the United States of America is oftentimes a lot of Christians who have forgotten which kingdom they ultimately belong to. Now, I am not saying that politics in the here and now are unimportant. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if you lose sleep at night over who's going to be in the White House, who's going to take the Senate, what Supreme Court justice, this, that, the other thing, and you don't remember that we are part of a kingdom that will never be shaken— you're missing out on a lot of peace that could be yours. The author of Hebrews, he talks about this again in, in, his, in his sermon. And he says, you know, make sure you're listening to the one who's speaking. And he goes back and he talks about the Israelites in front of Mount Sinai, how they, they didn't listen 
when God warned them before and his voice shook the earth before, but God's saying, hey, in, again, in the future, I'm going to shake all things. Not just the earth, but the heavens. Verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made. All earthly kingdoms have been made. They will be shaken and they will not last into eternity. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Oh my goodness. If that doesn't encourage your heart in the middle of the political climate that we live in, if that doesn't offer you some peace in the middle of the madness, I don't know what will. Friends, are you in Christ? You are part of an unshakable kingdom that is ruled by the only one you would ever want to have as a dictator, Jesus Christ, because he is pure love. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. If we lose the plot, if we forget that all Christian theology has this end times as our, as our end point, we get too caught up in the politics of today and we lose the peace that surpasses understanding. There is so much political idolatry that is supposed to be directed as worship to Jesus for the fact that he has saved us by his blood and called us into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is not just a fire, but a consuming fire. (sighs) Only that which is of him, only that which is in Christ will remain. Amen? Gotta think carefully. We've got to remember we're in the end times. It's a long process. We need to develop some grit. We need to balance our hope and our caution. And we need to remember that we're headed for the kingdom of God. Let me offer three brief thoughts as I close. Three practical thoughts of application. Number one, like I said, remember the big picture of the story. And by this, I specifically mean your life, you're, you're, you can describe your life in terms of a story. The rise and fall of your career, the, the birth of your children, the end of your marriage, the death of a loved one. Your, 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 your life is this story. Sometimes we do that actually. We, hey, look, tell me your life story. Tell me what's going on. Your life story is important, but it's not ultimate. Your life story can become all-consuming and then you forget that in Christ we have been swept up into the greatest story ever told. The redemption of the world, the rescue of all things, the reconciliation of all things unto Christ. Your life story is important, but it's not ultimate. Remember that because of Jesus, you now get to be a small part of the most epic story ever written. How amazing is that? That provides some perspective. Yes, we have ups and downs and, and, and the Lord cares about every detail. He, he notices when a tiny sparrow falls to the ground. He knows when you have pains and troubles. But don't lose the plot. Remember the big picture of the story. Number two, trust Jesus even when it seems like the world is falling apart at the seams. Do you guys know that verse in Psalms 2 where it says, why do the nations rage and, the, and the, you know, the kings and kingdoms plot in vain? You guys know that? What does it say that God does? It says that the Lord sits in heaven and laughs. 
It actually says he laughs in derision. Like, a, like, like, like just imagine God in heaven and all the nations and the UN and the kingdoms and, and he just goes, it's like that. What are, you, what are you doing? And I don't necessarily want you to laugh like that in public, but can you adopt a little bit of that in your heart? When you, when you, when you open the news, you're reading through your news feed on social media or watching TV or whatever, and you just sit there and you're like, is everyone losing their minds? A, the answer is yes, but B, trust Jesus. Is he ruling and reigning? Does he have an end that he's going to bring this all to? Will we experience the unshakable nature of his kingdom in the future, but also even a little bit in the here and now? Absolutely. We can trust Jesus even when it seems like the world is falling apart. Last, number three, I encourage you to learn some big fancy theological words. I want you to do it because, number one, you will be immensely popular at your 4th of July barbecue or cookout or whatever. But also, in studying, in applying yourself, you just might experience God's grace and his love and the closeness of relationship with him in the middle of it. Amen? So, so study. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have told us the end of the story. Thank you that we can trust you. Even when the nations are raging, even when things are seemingly out of control, Jesus, we trust you that your kingdom is an unshakable kingdom. And Jesus, I ask right now, as we come to the table to eat and to drink, would you nourish us? Would you strengthen us? God, would you help us to develop some grit and some perseverance that we would not be tempted to fall away even when things get difficult? And that Jesus, we would not only be thankful for the salvation that we have received, but we would be uh, passionate. We'd have a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel with all in our lives. We thank you and we worship you, our God who gives us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor Doug, I'll invite you to lead us in communion now. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Appreciate the fact that we get taught the word each week and very faithful to what it says. Go ahead and take out the communion elements and uh, get them opened. If you didn't get one on the way in, uh, just right outside the door, you'll find some buckets of them, or right down here, you'll, you'll find some if, if you need one. So I'm going to go ahead and read from 1 Corinthians. Remember, in communion, we remember that God reconciled himself, us to himself, through Jesus Christ. From 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So later in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, once we were reconciled, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to reconcile people to God through the good news of the gospel, 
but also to reconcile people to each other, to us with those around us. In Matthew, Jesus tells us, if while you're at the altar worshiping the Lord, you become aware that something is not quite right with someone you know or once knew, leave the altar and reconcile yourself to the one who is offended. In other words, I want you to deal with that matter before you continue to worship. Paul instructs us, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let us, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So practically speaking, how does reconciliation happen between, between us? Christ shows us, and there's only one way. Someone has to die. If there's to be reconciliation with your wife, your husband, a family member, a neighbor, your boss, someone has to die. But we, I don't want to die. How come, how come she can't die? It's his turn to die. I'm sick and tired of dying. Why does it have to be me? I know there's been several times that I can recall that I've driven to church in this situation. Maybe husbands, we sit behind the wheel. Our words are few, but our thoughts are many. Why is she so cold? Meanwhile, she sits on the other side of the car, hugging the door handle there and thinks, why is he so demanding? The silence is deafening, broken only by the sound of a wall being constructed between us. And that wall just gets higher every day. We come to church and we lift our hands in worship. But the Lord would say, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember that he or she has something against you, don't even continue worshiping until after the hurtful situation. So take time now and pray and reflect. Taking the bread and juice. We need to take time to confess our sin our unbelief, and maybe to repent with those, the, to those who are with us today. Maybe it's time for us to die to ourselves so we don't come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Commun communion is for those in relationship with the Father who have acknowledged their sin, their brokenness, and need for a Savior. So if you're not a believer at this time, Jesus died that you would know the Father. So take this time. Now is the time. Confess your need to God now and ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to be your Lord and Savior, and then for all of us that he would reveal more of himself to us. I'm going to pray now, and then the band's gonna, band is going to lead us in singing. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Please guide our thoughts and our words as we come before you. Make us aware of the ways we may be hurting the ones we love the most. Father, draw us near to you that we may experience reconciliation. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us enough to die for us that we may be in relationship with you. 
to be called your sons and daughters and a friend of the king. And it's in the name of our king, Jesus, I pray. Amen.